0: Well, Good morning again. Uh, last week we had a, uh, a meeting about an upcoming trip to Ethiopia with Horn of Africa ministries and, and Chris held that meeting and it was uh, well attended and we got all our questions answered and all of you signed up. Of course tickets are already bought, you're all going so just just you just all you have to do is show up. No. what we didn't do and really should have done was actually have like a sign in with names on paper. And we didn't have that at all. So I have, like, I'll use the first page of my sermon notes. How's that? Okay, I won't need it after this morning. On the back of that, I need to like your your names if you want to go. That's all. Come and see me afterwards. Um, it's not going to be a meeting or anything like that. It's just uh, just I, I need to know uh, your passport number so I can buy your ticket. Remember? No. Um. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We usually get the last seven rows, actually, I think, on the... Um, Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please, and uh, we will read through verse 19, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Why don't we go into verse 20 since it's so good. But now, Christ is risen from the dead. Comma, pause. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice that you are living. We we rejoice in the resurrection. We are uh, humbled by this amazing truth. We're astonished by it. But we put all our hope in it. We, we thank you for the, the fruits of the resurrection. For... Uh, You including us in the resurrection. We pray now that we would worship around this truth. That we would have our eyes fixed on Jesus, a a resurrected living Savior who is coming again. We rejoice in these things and ask your presence here with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This chapter, which is a long one, is, it's the gospel. (laughs) It's the gospel according to Paul. Uh, It is the the gospel that Paul preached, and it is the gospel that the Corinthians received that they needed to be reminded of. That's important that Paul is reminding them, uh, these wayward Christians, this is the message you received. This is what you heard. It wasn't a different message. We're not updating it, and you don't get to update it. You were not saved by any other means, only this gospel and your faith in it was what brought you out of darkness into light. This is the gospel in which you stand, is what Paul says. Not only was the gospel the message that you originally heard and responded to at your conversion, but it is the same message that sustains you in this life all the way until you cross the threshold into the next. There is no Corinthian that could say, well, the gospel I heard was different no, Paul preached the gospel to the Corinthians. He was their spiritual father, 1 Corinthians 4.15. There was no Corinthian that could say, that was fine for then, but but now is now, and I've grown up. He says, no, this is, this is what in the place you stand for as long as you can stand. Paul is saying, I preached to you this message, and I'm preaching it to you again. He brought the message that made them aware of the weight of their sin, the mercy of God, and the hope of heaven, and he's telling them that you never graduate from that message. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the message that you received, and it is the message in which you stand. To say this another way, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Verse 2. The gospel is that message by which You are saved. It was the message of the death of Jesus and the events that followed that caused the Corinthians to repent and believe. They heard about Jesus, and they changed everything in responding to that message. That belief, that saving faith, is proven in part by its consistency. The saving faith is the faith that holds fast. In the same way that the apostle James, or the the brother of our Lord James, is sure to point out that faith without works is dead, Paul says that faith that lets go is vain. This is not somehow remove the mighty hand of God from its hold on you. This is not a way of saying that salvation is only an open door and you can walk in, walk out, walk back in, and it's kind of, it's yours if you can keep it thing. But there is a false faith, and Paul has no desire to offer false assurances. The gospel is preached. It was received. It can and must be stood upon It is through the gospel that you are saved, but the gospel is only effective when it is clung to. The way we usually talk about this is by pointing out that the faith we have in Jesus is not just an intellectual assent. It is not an intellectual faith or a faith that believes in facts. To bring James into this again, even the demons believe and tremble. That's a vain belief. It is a faith that does not save. It's a faith that is not clinging to Jesus, placing all its hope and faith in him. Here, coming to the end of his letter, Paul is calling the Corinthian saints back to the gospel that saved them, reminding them that if they move on or move out from the gospel, if they stand on something else, that gospel will no longer benefit them. If they let go of what they believed, then past faith, a memory of faith, will be unprofitable. He doesn't want to meet the the Christians of Corinth years down the road on a future missionary journey and hear them say, yes, yes, I used to believe in that Jesus stuff. Uh, I used to actually believe in the resurrection. Can you believe it? I was young and naive. You know, it was an emotional time. But now I've moved on to more mature spirituality. To this person, Paul would say, well, you believed in vain. He is warning and guarding the church against this fate, against false faith. And the best way Paul knows how to do this is to declare the gospel which he preached to them. He preaches. Not a new message. Not a different message. Certainly not the first time Paul has preached this exact message. But it's the same message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. There's no secret strategy. It's just the gospel, and it needs to be preached. The gospel is, verse 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. This is how Paul defines the gospel. It's not something that he made up. It says, I'm delivering to you that which I also received. This is the once and for all faith that was handed down to the saints. It's really somewhat remarkable that it's in this letter of 1 Corinthians that we find the most concise description of the gospel, because this is the church, remember, that can't do anything right, that can't, can't get along, won't call out sin, fights with each other, abuses the communion table, and disrupts the church service every week. And each of one of those things was addressed specifically. But what did the Corinthians really need? What did they need most? They needed the gospel. The gospel had changed their lives once upon a time, and now their lives were changing back. And they needed to return to a firm foundation. And the firm foundation that they need to stand on was this. Christ died for our sins. I said, this is not the first time Paul is preaching this to the Corinthians, right? You remember all the way back in chapter one, this had been Paul's single repeated message while he was with the Corinthians. Uh, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He was just a broken record. You know, he preached it over and over. When the Corinthians wanted to talk about philosophy or gossip or politics, Paul said, that reminds me of how Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And he would just like, Shh, bring it right back. It's the message that changes lives, so Paul uses his life to preach it. Christ died for our sins. This is the whole point, not just of the four Gospels, but of the entire Old and New Testaments. You can hear Isaiah say the same thing 700 years before Christ was born. Isaiah 53, 3-5, it says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs, there's the trade, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He died for our sins. This is the gospel. We have nowhere else to stand. Sin deserves death, and just as a dead person can have no fellowship with the living, sin prevents fellowship with the living God. In order to save us from hell and grant us fellowship with the Father, Jesus Christ took our sins and the punishment they justly earned and died. This is the one message the apostles repeat, repeatedly preach and write about and hold on to until their deaths. First Peter 2.24 says that Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Peter knew that this is what Isaiah had talked about centuries before. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. His burial confirms his death and ours, and his resurrection showed his power over death, his and ours. Of course, it is the resurrection that Paul mainly focuses in on on the rest of this chapter, It's the theological implications of the resurrection that the Corinthians, who were caught in sin and bad doctrine, needed to understand. They needed to be reminded of the quality of this new life in Christ. Um, It was was, uh, the factual, historical resurrection of Jesus that the doubting Corinthians needed to be reminded of. It really happened. Some of them were questioning resurrection as a whole. It means that Jesus is really alive and that he is for you. It was the hope of the resurrection that some of the hopeless Corinthians needed to be reminded of. Reminded of, Just as his death becomes our death as we cling to him in the gospel, so also his resurrection becomes our resurrection. Death loses its sting. Hell loses its victory. That's all coming down in a few verses later in the chapter. But first, Paul takes on the reality of the historical resurrection, and he does a little bit of apologetics for the benefit of the Corinthians and us. In verse 5, he says, And that he was... Uh, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. He was seen by Cephas, that's Peter. Uh, Both Cephas and Peter mean rock, that's the name Jesus gave Peter in Matthew 16. Uh, Paul mentions Peter first, even though Peter was not the first to see Jesus after the resurrection. was Mary. Remember Mary Magdalene? Uh, But do you remember what the angel at the tomb told Mary? Go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going up to Galilee and will meet you there. Uh, It's evident from the Gospels that Peter was the main guy. He was the leader of the disciples. And Paul is showing that Peter is still uh, an important figure in the early church. Peter saw Jesus. The twelve saw Jesus in the upper room. uh, When Jesus came through the locked doors. And then in Galilee, on a fishing trip, he saw some more of them. Paul is arguing here for an apostolic church. He is showing that the twelve had an authority that the churches were to submit to. This was an issue of of importance for the rebellious Corinthians, remember? And then after this, we get mention of a story none of the four Gospels tell. Jesus was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Jesus was not hiding himself after the resurrection. The believers saw him, and many of them were alive when Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians. His message could be confirmed by eyewitnesses. And then in verse 7, he mentions James. Uh, This is the James, not one of the 12, but the one who wrote the epistle of James, who would be uh, head over the church in Jerusalem. James had not been a believer prior to the resurrection, but having now encountered the resurrected Lord, he believes. And finally, Paul says Jesus was seen by all the apostles. Uh, That's not a different group from the 12, but rather a different meeting. He shows himself to Peter, the 12, 40 days goes by, and then at the ascension he is seen by the 12, the apostles on his way up to heaven. What Paul is doing by mentioning these eyewitnesses of the resurrection is he is drawing our gaze and the gaze of the Corinthians onto the risen Lord. He's saying, Peter saw him, and then we all look to see what Peter was looking at. The twelve saw him. Five hundred saw him. At the same time, James saw him. Then all the apostles together saw him. The idea is not just that Jesus was known to be alive, though that is of vital importance, but it's that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is worthy of our constant gaze. Not only that, but Paul is going to show us through a brief personal testimony that the vision of Jesus changes us entirely. This is what brings the dead back to life says, then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Paul, too, had seen the resurrected Lord. He saw him on the road to Damascus. He was stopped in his tracks, blinded by the light. The gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was something that had personal importance to Paul. Back in verse 3, he had said, I'm delivering to you that which I also received. Now, it's the same language he used in chapter 11 when he talks about communion. The gospel, whether it's proclaimed in preaching or through the sacraments, is a message that can really only be given by those for whom it has become effective. It says, this is something I have personally received and I want to give you. Paul can say, look to Jesus, because he had looked and seen, and could say, long before the song was written, I once was blind, but now I see. He says, I received this. I received this message, and now I'm giving it to you. Paul includes his testimony after the other apostles, not because he is less of an apostle. He argues a whole lot earlier in the book, right, about how, how he has full credentials as an apostle. But he, he says, I'm I'm unworthy to be counted among them in rank because I'm, I'm like one who is born out of due time. He is an anomaly. That's actually the idea of this phrase here. When Paul says, I was one born out of due time, uh, he's not using words that would have been used to describe, you know, say a, a baby that made it a week or two past their due date. Um, the word used is actually used to refer to some kind of unhealthy birth, an anomaly that would be seen as sort of a freak accident even. Uh, it's most commonly used to refer to a stillbirth or a child that is born with severe defects. Paul isn't just commenting that he's like, yeah, I came to the church a little later in life. That's not his point. He's not just commenting on the late arri- his late arrival to the Christian faith. He's referring to his deadness and deformity when Christ appeared to him. The other apostles, they knew Jesus before the resurrection. Yeah, Peter denied him. But before this, they were friends. <laughs> Paul persecuted the church. Among the giants of the apostles, he saw himself as a dead, deformed child. The emphasis here is on how far the grace of God came to get to Paul and how drastic the change was in his life. He's saying, when God appeared to me, I was dead. I was helpless. I was deformed. I was a freak. And today I am writing to you, and I'm considering myself the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, the church in Corinth was pretty messed up, right? They were rebellious, they were selfish, and Paul had to correct them. But do you think that Paul, in correcting the Corinthians, was somehow on a power trip? Was somehow holding this, you know, uh, uh, this moral high ground that allowed him to keep his nose up in the air while he talked down to the Corinthians? you think he was talking down to them, thinking of them as undeserving while considering himself as somehow more worthy of the grace of God? No, of course not. He calls the Corinthians saints, and he calls himself a stillborn child. He tells them plainly, I am the last person God should pick as an apostle. I am the least of the apostles. I was the worst, but God changed me. You know how? It was the gospel. None of this other stuff that you're messing around with, Corinthians. (laughs) It was the gospel that changed me. It was the gospel that I preached to you. If we become what we are because of our own worthiness, then I, Paul, should not even be called an apostle. I used to persecute the church, not lead it, but then I saw Jesus. We are not what we are only because of what we do or how good we do it. We are what we are by the grace of God. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me, The Corinthians could say that first part along with Paul. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Remember, Paul calls the Corinthians saints. And then he spends 15 chapters describing some of the worst people you could ever have lunch with. You know? Like he calls them saints. You're saints of God, chosen, sanctified. That's not because they're well behaved. Obviously. It's because the grace of God had been poured out onto them and the solution for their misbehavior and false beliefs and doubt, the solution, the medicine they needed was to return to this grace, which is the gospel. And then Paul says that the grace of God on him, Paul, was not in vain and that the evidence of this effective grace was that he worked harder and labored more abundantly than anyone else. Uh, This is one of those uh, apparent paradoxes of the Christian faith where faith and and works or grace and human effort and responsibility are contrasted and then reconciled. Uh, Paul says that he is an apostle by grace. He's told the Corinthians that they are saints by grace. He tells the Ephesians and everyone else that they're saved by grace. And then he says that the evidence of an effective grace is work. The grace of apostleship was proven to be effective and not in vain because he labored more abundantly. Paul has told these Corinthian saints that their faith is in the gospel and that God's grace is on them, mighty to save. But he also leaves this option available to them as a warning, unless you believed in vain. Or here he says, and his grace to me was not in vain. He's sort of hedging against any sort of idea of cheap grace that would discount holiness and obedience. In calling the Corinthians to look to Jesus, he's echoing the famous passage in Hebrews 12 where we get that, that concept, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Looking to Jesus, which is faith. You know, we get this idea from John chapter 3, John 3, 16, you heard it before, once or twice, you know, and Jesus says it's like, it's like the serpent in the wilderness. Everyone that looked at the serpent was saved. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. We look to Christ with the saving gaze of the soul, with the eyes of faith, and say, I believe in him. Looking to Jesus, which is faith, includes laying aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares. These are not opposing ideas or contrary doctrines where you need to pick one, And oppose the other. It's either by grace or I actually have to do stuff. Uh, You know, back here in Corinthians where Paul emphasizes the grace of God and the power of faith in the gospel, he emphasizes at the same time our call to obey. Where he emphasizes grace in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved and not of works. He's sure to follow that up right away by saying that you were created for good works. And then here in Corinthians, he brings it full circle and says that the work which he does, that prove the grace, well, the work is also by grace. says, it wasn't actually me, it was the grace with me that was working. That's how you know it was effective grace. In a way, the entire letter to the Corinthians has been a call to holiness, a life of holy obedience, righteousness. This is in no way whatsoever contrary to the preaching of the gospel and the immeasurable grace of God and the forgiveness of sins. The messages are one and the same. Chapter 15 in Corinthians is the final word in this plea that Paul has been making for 15 chapters. And it's all based on the gospel. Christ died for your sins, Christ has been raised to glory. These are the reasons for your pursuit of holiness, just as they were for Paul. Paul was a man who knew the gravity of his sin. Just look at how he describes himself in this passage and the, the weight of his sin. And he knew personally the relief. Of forgiveness, and this compels him to put all his strength into the pursuit of the upward call of Christ, and this is where he is inviting the church to come with him. Now, on Easter Sunday a few weeks back, we went through verses twelve through nineteen, so I'm not going to just repreach that same sermon. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on them, but I am going to read them to you here, and then suggest that you go online and listen to that sermon that you missed. Uh, but you'll you'll just get a quick review, um, and then there's more to be had that I didn't share on Easter, and we'll get into that. But in verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead did not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In the Easter sermon, we looked at several things that would be true if Christ had not been risen, but are now wonderfully false because Christ is risen. If Christ is not risen, preaching the gospel is empty. This chapter is pointless. Faith in the gospel is empty. The apostles are false witnesses and liars. Your sins remain unforgiven. Christ, uh, uh, Christians excuse me, who have died are dead for good. There's no coming back from that. And the best hope we have is in this short, sad, painful life. Uh, to sum it up, if Christ is not risen, Christians are the most pitiful bunch to ever walk the earth. And of course, because Christ is risen, all of this is reversed. All those sadnesses become untrue. Preaching the gospel is full and effective and worth the lives that are spent and sacrificed in its proclamation. Faith in the gospel is real and substantial and secure. The apostles were true witnesses. Their accounts can be trusted. The scriptures that they compiled are true, inerrant, unchanging, and life-changing. Better yet, because Christ is risen, your sins are forgiven. Cast as far as the east is from the west. And not only your sins, but also all the sins of those who have died in Christ who believed in Jesus, even unto death, they have not perished, but are alive in the truest sense of the word. Because of the resurrection, our hope is not only in this life, but in the next, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. We of all men are the most to be envied, not pitied. This is what the struggling church in Corinth needed to hear. My Easter sermon from three weeks ago. No, Um, they needed to hear this gospel that Paul had been preaching over and over and over ever since they met him. Because it, it's the gospel that it's the gospel that they always need to hear. You can see in verse 12 that this was a very real need for this specific church. Paul says, How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That was actually happening in Corinth. There were those in the church who were saying, There is no resurrection. Now, we're finally getting to the bottom of things as far as the Corinthians' problems. I don't know if you've wondered this as we've gone through Corinthians. You know, how, did, how did it get that bad? Well, I think we found out. I think we've struck on the root. Back at the beginning of the book, Paul pointed out that they were divided into camps that preferred one teacher or another, one apostle over the other. Even though the apostles were not divided, the church was dividing according to their favorite apostle. And Paul's argument is that the apostles are united primarily by their shared experience in seeing the risen Christ. Resurrection unifies. And without this conviction of resurrection, Corinth was divided. They were dividing, you know, according to their favorite teacher because the teaching was the most important thing, not the eyewitness account they gave of the resurrected Jesus. Because resurrection is not that important. It doesn't even happen. They don't even believe in it. Without that, you just go and find your favorite teacher to give you a pep talk. They also rejected Paul as an apostle, which makes sense if the resurrection doesn't carry the weight it should. Even Paul says if there's no resurrection, the apostles are liars. The Corinthians were de-emphasizing the cross because it's foolishness to the Greek. And of course, if you don't believe that the dead are raised or that Christ defeated death, we would all agree that the cross would be a hard sell. It's hard enough already. But the Corinthians were unrepentant of this and they're unrepented in areas of gross sins tolerating immorality that even unbelievers looked down on but now we see that without resurrection we're still in our sins we can we can see that without the belief in the resurrection the confidence in forgiveness and even the desire for holiness they're compromised they were not discerning the lord's body in communion how could they believe that they were having fellowship with Jesus if Jesus is not raised the Corinthians were denying spiritual realities and eating the food sacrificed to idols. And in their own communion service, they were believing some weird things. But if your entire hope is only in this life, you can't be expected to have a clear vision of the unseen realm that extends beyond this life. If your only hope is in this life, then cutting in line and gorging yourself and getting drunk at church meals, like the Corinthians were doing, actually makes a lot of sense. You see that once doubt is cast on the resurrection itself, all Christianity crumbles, and with it, any sort of moral ethic that Christianity establishes. I don't think chapter 15 is like a PS at the end of the letter. It's not Paul saying, okay, we've cleared up all the important issues like speaking in tongues and doing communion, right? Oh, by the way, you should probably keep believing in the resurrection if you weren't already. Uh, bye. No, this isn't, this isn't a peripheral, peripheral issue. This was a central issue. And Paul has been building up to it as the main and final point. He hasn't left it to the end because it's un, of its unimportance. He's left it till the end so he can wrap up all the loose ends and give one last final plea to get the church back on the right track. And the track is the gospel. The way he does this is by preaching the gospel and emphasizing the resurrection. And this is the longest chapter in the book. Not an afterthought. It is a capstone. It's not just the final hope for the Corinthians. It is the only hope for the church. It's the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's Paul's prescription for a healthy church. And this prescription is still needed today. Uh, We have problems, just like the Corinthians. Okay, not just like the Corinthians, but we still have, like, problems. Every church does. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And one of the ways the Lord faithfully answers our prayer to bind our wandering hearts to himself is through the consistent preaching of the gospel. We need regular preaching. We need the gospel of grace regularly preached and regularly practiced in the community of the saints. The gospel preached from scripture. The gospel shown and shared in communion. The gospel lived out in community. This is both feast and medicine. It sustains us. It heals us. And Next week, we get to continue on in chapter 15, and it's going to be all about the resurrection. And the week after that, we'll do it some more, because the rest of the chapter is all about resurrection. This is fitting, because we're actually in a period now between Easter and Pentecost, it's a season on the church calendar called Tide. We're still in the Easter season when the resurrection is celebrated day after day, week after week. Even as we move into chapter 16 at the end of next month and um, we'll start, or start 2 Corinthians at the end of next month each and every Sunday, we'll celebrate resurrection. That's what we do when we come to church on Sundays. Making much of the risen Christ, setting our hope in things that are secured beyond this life, fixing our eyes on Jesus and running full speed ahead towards him. Please join me in prayer. God, we worship you. We love you. We desire your blessing on our church. And we recognize and confess that this blessing comes from nowhere else but the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask that our vision would be clear Be thou my vision. We pray for the grace to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray that we would walk in this newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. And Then after the doxology, if anyone would like specific prayer, have, have specific prayer requests, there'll be people up here happy to pray with you. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, above ye heavenly hope. Praise Father, Son, and Holy that you are sent